Welcome back everyone to The Heart Podcast. It has been a minute. We have taken a bit of a break since our last episode and are excited to engage you all again this season. This pause allowed us to consider the work of Trisha Hersey, Rest as Resistance, and what it may mean for us as we approach this season with you. We have decided to take this season to reflect on where we've been and give you all a chance to join us in this reflection in terms of how some of the lessons covered in this podcast so far could be useful to us at this moment in time in the world where there are global challenges toward anti-racist teaching. We thought it would be good for us as a community to consider what it means to continue to engage in this work, even in the midst of these challenges. As such, during this season, we're gonna reflect back on episodes that focus on collective change, community engagement, community partnerships, dialogue, and more. To get us started on this reflective season, we begin with a reflection on the episodes that we released during 2023. All of them focus on the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework being advanced by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation in partnership with the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Throughout these various episodes in 2023, we had conversations about particular parts of the framework. In this episode, we want to have a conversation about what it means to bring it all together for a larger framing that can support educators' efforts in college and university classrooms, particularly when they are working to create spaces of learning in the classroom while wars and conflicts are unfolding across the globe. With that said, I'm going to pass it over to Omar for the land acknowledgement. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. I'll now pass it over to Truth to get us started with our conversation. I would like to begin this conversation by highlighting that global conflicts are powerful reminders that higher education institutions are not in a bubble and that the conditions of our world are profoundly interconnected. A good starting place for using world events as a teaching tool is reminding our students that all global crises are shaped by larger historical contexts. The TRHT framework underscores the importance of contextualizing current conflict as a process of narrative change. With that being said, I would like to go back to some remarks that Dr. Tia McNair, who shared that in order for us to heal through dialogue, it's important to begin with the truth about history. Let's take a moment to hear Tia's insights in this area. And there are a lot of emotions involved in these discussions and a lot of fear and anxiety. But let's start with the just the fundamental piece of truth, racial healing, transformation and the language that we use to describe it. So first is truth telling. We have to know our histories. We have to know who we are, what, what, ha what has been experienced, how that has influenced the current day situations that we're in right now. So that part is fundamental, understanding who we are, what has happened, how we're going to move forward. So truth telling and understanding our narratives and our lived experiences are at the core of that. So we're always in our work with TRHT going to be supportive of that knowledge sharing, that that understanding of history. So that is fundamental to, to, to the work of TRHT. But look at the language that we use to describe TRHT. 
truth-telling, narrative change, racial healing, relationship building, examining how we are separated, how our laws, how our economic decisions, our economies perpetuate a false belief in a hierarchy of human value. We use the terminology of expansive, interconnectedness, common humanity within this work. Our work on TRHT is not about perpetuating divisions. Our work in, in TRHT is not about replacing hierarchies as has been mis misunderstood in so many different contexts within the challenges on diversity and equity and inclusion and justice and belonging work at many institutions and within many systems. This work is about us understanding who we are, understanding that our experiences have been different, but deep listening and being empathetic and then really thinking about how we come together as a community to heal so that we can lead the transformation that we seek. Tia helps us to see that narrative change is made possible when it is rooted in history. I would like to add on that truth telling must include the history of colonial domination which can offer keen insight into the origins of conflict, exploitation, and deprivation. Also, Dr. Haynes and Dr. Stewart offer invaluable pedagogical knowledge on how to facilitate narrative change through counter-narratives. Counter-narrative pedagogy is concerned with capturing the voices and perspectives of marginalized groups as legitimate and valuable forms of knowledge. Dr. Stewart puts this pedagogy into practice through reflective writing. She encourages students to free write about their lived experiences, feelings, and emotions to activate their voices. Let's listen to Dr. Stewart's approach. One of the core principles or tenets of that work is really around activation of student voices and the use of their lived experiences being implemented and core to how they're learning and what they're learning so that they see themselves within the literature and they see themselves written as exactly what Dr. Hinz spoke about within that writer's resistance. And that the more of us that are able to do this just seamlessly is the more we end up disrupting the canon from the peripheries of learning, but become centered within knowledge, right? And knowledge contributions. So typically how these assignments will go and when prior to my start at the University of Connecticut as at the University of West Indies, and I taught more quantitative courses there. And so I taught most of the research methods at the grad at the grad level and the quantitative research methods. And they were always shocked by the fact that they had to write these counter narratives in a quantitative class. In fact, they were like, why? There's a lot of resistance built up in the beginning as to why. And again, it's the same principles that underlined. It was how do they see themselves in the literature? How do they write themselves and understand the literature that much more? Dr. Haynes also offers powerful advice to faculty about holding space for students when they feel overwhelmed about what's happening in the world. Here's a soundbite of Dr. Haynes. If you're very conscious of just that there's a societal world that we're all living in and operating under. And then your students show up to your classroom and you think, okay, I have an agenda, I'm just gonna do it. Yeah, 
why don't you stop for just a second and just ask students how they're doing? How are you? This is a common practice for me that I, I hold space in my class for about 15 minutes before class starts to be like, how's everybody doing? What's happened in your life since the last time I saw you? And, you know, the, the amount of stuff that comes and it's very important information for me because I might change my entire <laughs> ordering of the, uh, the, the lesson plan or throw something entirely out based on that first 15 minutes. So to me, that's regardless of which teaching paradigm you operate from, if you start there, that might just give students the opportunity to focus more. They, they had this on their mind and they're glad they got it out or not to feel so isolated. So the one student who's missing home and they heard someone else say they were missing home, that might help just alleviate the stress that or the distress that a student could be in in your classroom when you don't even know. Dr. Haynes' remarks helps us to see that it is okay to take time to acknowledge what students are feeling, even if we don't have all the answers for their questions. Our job is to just hold space. Now, I would like to hand it over to Milagros to talk about TRHT pillar on racial healing through relationship building. Truth, those are really helpful highlights of our episodes this year in terms of how educators can create space and process in the classroom for truth telling and for changing the narrative. Thank you so much for lifting up those points. Another important pillar of the truth, racial healing and transformation framework is racial healing through relationships. And in reflecting back to the episode from March 2023 with Dr. April Alexander, Sharon Stroy, and Michael Vidal, Dr. Alexander mentioned that it's important to enter healing by spending time learning about the global, national, and local histories that are at play. And that healing also entails considering what we need to rebuild together. Let's take a listen to Dr. Alexander. I think the Kellogg Foundation is right in alignment with how I think about racial healing, that for a lot of us, we need to, as a society, reflect on the impacts that settler colonialism has had on our world and those effects being continued on to today. So when we're talking about settler colonialism, really reflecting on the genocide and labor exploitation and the loss of life and freedom uh, that so many indigenous and black folks um, across the globe have had. When we're in pursuit of having racial healing, we need to think about how we're still not acknowledging the effects of racism and oppression in our um, communities. Of what would it look like for us to actually tell the truth about what happened? What would it look like, especially in this time where we're having an attack on history to tell the truth about what has happened to communities throughout their history. What would it look like to know our backgrounds and upbringings and who we are and where we've come from? Not just one affinity month of the year, but year round of reflecting on what that looks like. And not just at the national scope, at the local scope that I now have affinity for learning about local history and how historically marginalized groups have transformed communities. So as we're approaching looking at models of truth and reconciliation, it is starting with that truth. How do we come together as communities and reflect on the harms that have been caused through settler colonialism? We've seen these models in places like South Africa, Australia, as they are thinking about the harms that have been caused to indigenous persons and African persons throughout the diaspora. 
So, you know, if we're talking about a national conversation, we haven't even got there yet. And again, my fears are that this current attack on history on critical race studies is further pushing us away from truly achieving radical healing if we can't even get to the acknowledgement step first. And then I think ultimately it is just thinking about a process in which not just heal, but rebuild what our communities look like. That I don't know if we can truly heal from everything that has occurred historically, but I think we can rebuild and imagine a new future where we're not stuck with these oppressive mechanisms in institutions, in interpersonal relationships, etc. You know, listening to Dr. Alexander again, I'm left thinking that as an educator, it's important to create opportunities for students to engage in learning about how we got into where we are in whatever particular conflict is unfolding, whether it be locally or globally. And it's also important to not only think about harm, but also what communities need to rebuild together. In a related point, Sharon Stroy notes in the same episode that it's important for people to see each other in their common humanity. And she asks us to consider the following question. How much is our capacity to see each other in each other limited by our unwillingness to hear each other's truths? That's a really powerful question. Also in the same episode, Michael Vidal mentions that there are people who get to make meaning of their experience, and then there are people who are just experiencing their experience. And there's a privilege in the opportunity to process, to make meaning of one's experience. Let's take a listen to what Michael had to say. The one thing that I'm reminded is that I think there are people who have the opportunity to make meaning of their experience. And then there are other people who just simply are experiencing their experience. And so I think um, the I, I think there's an assumption, and I've internalized this assumption sometimes, and I have to check myself, that there is a power and a privilege in being able to construct time to be with yourself and to be with other people in community to do that meaning making. I, I think in, in higher ed, I think it's becoming more of a, becoming more of a practice, but I, I, I realize, right, that there are young people, there are adults, there are working professionals who have done this work their whole lives, who have never been in a room with someone else to actually do this work. And so that's what gives me pause, is that the simple act of bringing people together to make meaning of their experience is actually not as common as I think we believe it is. And so that's sort of a consideration that I hold very close to me and not really assume that. I also think about what our motivation is behind <laughs> The decision to bring people together to engage in this work, is it coming at the tail end of an incident that has shaken up the community? Or are people coming together as a way to be just proactive to Sharon's point, because we're trying to engage in our humanness, <laughs> we're trying to do this work. And so I think the motivation oftentimes shapes and impacts people's capacity or, or the level to which they decide to go there, right, with themselves and other people. I find it really encouraging as I'm listening to Michael again, to consider that we can't assume that our students have had a chance to process their minoritized experiences. 
So when things are unfolding in our world, it seems really important for educators to create spaces for students to process how they're making meaning of what is happening and how doing that can support them in their relationship with themselves and in their relationships with others. You know, just a few minutes later, Michael also notes that it's important to consider where we're creating these spaces for processing. Sometimes students need spaces that are uniquely created for processing how they're making meaning. And that makes me think about the conversation that we had in September of 2023 with Josh Brown and Latrina Denson and their point about how affinity spaces on campus can be sacred spaces for minoritized students. So although I think educators have a responsibility to create spaces for students to process how they're making meaning of what's happening in the world around them, it seems equally important for faculty to work with educators on campus who are trained in creating these sacred spaces and sacred processes. As I say that though, I think about the institutional transformation needed so that these affinity spaces and the educators who lead and staff them are appropriately resourced because oftentimes those spaces run with very few staff and very small budgets, but their work is critical to an institution's capacity and responsibility for creating sacred spaces for students. And of course, all of this is making me think that relationship building and trust building requires that we begin with ourselves and that we have spaces for our own meaning making and then spaces for where we can make meaning with others. How we can do that with trust is really important to consider and how we can do it, this type of work in ways that support building quality and meaningful relationships that are anchored in trust is also really important. To take us a little further into this conversation, I now pass it over to Omar for his thoughts. Truth and Milagros, I loved hearing your insights from podcast conversations we engaged in last year surrounding truth, counter-narratives, and racial healing through relationship building. Given the current global state of affairs, we have all likely witnessed and perhaps have also felt both personally and professionally the level of polarization regarding issues of racial justice. From the curtailing of affirmative action to the continued multi-level attacks on DEI in schools, the perspectives surrounding issues of racial equity could not be more divided, and unfortunately, the conversations have become quite heated. I recently listened to a podcast episode by Hidden Brain that spoke about the topic of human relationships. The crux of the conversation revolved around how human beings can be selfish and stubborn in that we expect others to fit our needs or expectations. The guest on the episode compared human relationships and conversations to dancing in which individuals must move and adapt in order to keep the dance flowing. Similarly, engaging in racial equity work requires action in order to take part in the TRHD pillar of transformation. There are countless global dilemmas that are facing humanity at the moment, from war to famine to immigration to climate change. News of injustices have run rampant on all platforms and spaces where we consume information. Perhaps there is also pressure in our social spaces, whether they be at work or school, to have an opinion or quote-unquote an answer of sorts, whatever that might mean. But what if we were to take an approach of humility and curiosity rather than one of aggression and hate? 
What if we took the time to contemplate our complicity in the larger systems and structures that we live in that might be contributing to the harm of others? What agency and responsibility can people take to better care for one another in present day and also pave the way for a more equitable society for future generations? On our podcast episode from late May with Dr. Tia McNair from AACNU and Dr. Jeff Hines from UConn Health, they each shared insightful approaches to work towards developing more equitable systems. In terms of empowering individuals and taking action, Dr. Hines spoke about how change involves both proximity and participation, and that we should be attuned to the partners we can bring to the table in order to do racial justice work. Let's take a moment to hear Dr. Hines' thoughts. When I think of how University of Connecticut Health came involved, and overall in UConn, it was that sense of my two P's, proximity and participatory. And who are those partners that we can bring to the table to do the work, not only on campus, but to the greater community at large, because we are members of a vibrant community here in the stores area, here in the greater Hartford area. And it's important that we include our community partners that we are proximate with and we are participatory with to do this work. Because this work can't be viewed in a vacuum. It can't be viewed from an island perspective. So bringing all of those external and internal partners and stakeholders to the table to do this work to not only affect the university community, but affect the community at large is critically important if we're going to move the needle in this space. The involvement of external and internal partners can provide the resources and perspectives necessary to positively impact the larger community. For example, in terms of policy impact, how might we be able to encourage members of the community to attend school board meetings or even run for a school board? Communities are rich with passion and cultural wealth that can be harnessed to create social change. Essentially, it's vital that we transform spaces by transforming opportunities for those who have been marginalized and ignored. In late October, we had guests Dr. Laura Bunyan from UConn Stanford and Gracie Guzman from the nonprofit Higher Edge, who spoke to the systemic barriers that impact the experience of students pursuing higher education. Their direct interactions with students provide Laura and Gracie with a profound understanding of the barriers that minoritized college students face. Most importantly, Laura and Gracie utilize their understanding of minoritized student experiences to develop support mechanisms that can aid in their higher education journey. While minoritized student needs stretch far and wide, their efforts provide a direct need and may also inspire others to engage in this important work. Let's listen to Laura and Gracie's thoughts. Yesterday, I was teaching my family's class and I said, you know, some of you, I said, I think you don't feel comfortable talking because maybe you think that other people uh, have like a better critique of what we're reading than you. But you have to understand that maybe you're right. Maybe they're a little bit off the mark or maybe you're all right. And that this is okay. And you could see them like visibly relax. And then I had more participants. So I think that's something too for educators to know. It's not that someone doesn't want to talk or participate. It's that sometimes they don't feel like what they have to say is important and contributes to the conversation. So going off the food pantry, I started teaching sociology of food, like I mentioned before. 
and I wanted to do like a group project with them. Keep in mind, this was also really the height of COVID. It was spring 2022. So we still had like a few weeks remote. It was hard. And it was also an e-designation class. So it fills an environmental credit. So I had a lot of students that I don't think they really wanted to take my class. They were there because it fulfilled that. So that was a little bit of challenge, but hopefully I won them over. They were amazing. We separated them into groups. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a food pantry. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if it's not, but we're going to try and see what we can do. So they broke into groups. Some were interested in marketing. Some were interested in nutrition, some operation side. And then they would all work together in their small groups and we worked together collectively. We met with, uh, we had an interim director and I said, hey, we just want to try this out. And he's like, oh, like a pop-up. So we went with that. We said, okay, we'll do a pop-up for a few days and see what happens. And I said to my students, it was staffed by them. We were open three days a week, three hours a day, all volunteer. And I said, okay, what do you all want to do? I said, we can just do this one-time thing or we can just leave the doors open for the semester. And they were like, oh, let's leave it open. So it was amazing to see them come together. I had some of them admit, they were like, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was for them, the coolest thing that they ever did in college. And for me too, I think it allowed them to gain like this deeper connection with each other, with UConn as an institution, but also knowledge of food insecurity. This was one of the other things we do like snacks that I want anyone to take. And I told them all, I said, maybe you're not food insecure, but maybe somebody you're close to is, they're going to feel better if they go with you and you're all getting a snack and to work, to break down these barriers. I think it, you know, one of them, we connected with a, um, an organization, Food Rescue US. One of them went and did an internship with them. It just, I think it shaped them and allowed them to see what change could come about when students work together, even within the institutional setting. Like I mentioned prior, I do work with first-generation students, limited income. And so... A lot of the times, these are the students who have a lot on their plate already because they are helping their families with siblings or they have to work in order to pay bills, rent, food, all of those things that take away from actually being engaged in the classroom and being able to learn, um, have time to study. I have some students who work 40 hours a week. I work 40 hours a week. And sometimes I can't handle working and just being a human. I can't imagine also being a student and on top of that, having to worry about you're also working on your professional development while you're in school uh, for the goal of becoming a successful something in a career, right? You're already graduating with nothing to show on your resume because you don't have time to take the internship or to go to the networking events. And so that's probably one of the biggest barriers that we see. And so in my job, um, one of the things that we promote is to do scholarships so that you can have more time to do those things. But it's also a disservice because on top of their schoolwork, now they also have to worry about filling out those scholarship applications. And so it's just another thing that they have to add onto their plate. And like Laura mentioned, it's not that they're being lazy or avoidant, it's just that they really don't have time to focus on classroom learning. And then another thing is some of these students are coming from school districts that are underserved. And so they're already unprepared. They show up to the classroom and feel this isn't for me because I don't have the background that my peers do. 
And so already there's just things that are setting them back and they have to have that extra time to sort of learn how to learn. Laura specifically worked on an initiative at UConn Stanford in which she and several UConn students worked together to open a food pantry for students on campus. The food pantry was meant to provide students with a support mechanism aimed to help them be successful in the classroom and beyond. What is particularly unique about this endeavor is that not only did Laura's team take action to address a social issue, but the same initiative also inspired the students involved to be change agents themselves and instill the notion that positive change is possible. I'll now pass it over to Milagros. We hope you've enjoyed reflecting as much as we have during this episode. As we bring this episode to a close, we want to encourage you to consider listening again or for the first time to the episodes of 2023 that focused on the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Framework. And as you do that, consider for yourself what it may mean for your own work on campus and particularly for your own teaching practice. We also invite you to consider questions that might help you and your students rethink paradigms about what's happening in the world and what that might mean for them or for you as an educator. And we encourage you to engage in dialogue to create spaces and processes that honor people's stories and their common humanity. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. We look forward to connecting with you again in our next episode. Take care, everybody. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.